This is The Premise, and I'm your host, Chad Thompson. Chad Thompson's the host. I'm the host. (laughs) I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson, the host. On the premise, Chad and I are speaking with Jan Eliasberg, an award-winning writer and director. Her prolific directing career includes dramatic pilots for CBS, NBC, and ABC, such as Miami Vice and Wise Guy, countless episodes of television series including Bull, Nashville, Parenthood, The Magicians, Blue Bloods, NCIS, Los Angeles, Supernatural, and dozens of others, as well as the feature film Past Midnight, starring Paul Giamatti, Natasha Richardson, and Rutger Hauer. Eliasberg also has a storied career as a screenwriter, writing films driven by strong female leads, including Fly Girls, about the women air service pilots in World War II, for Nicole Kidman and Cameron Diaz, among many others. Today we're speaking with Jan Eliasberg about her highly acclaimed debut novel, Hannah's War. Jan Eliasberg, welcome to The Premise. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I'm really excited to talk about this book. And it's so good. It's beautiful. We'll get to that. For the benefit of our listeners, I'm going to read the jacket copy. Um, For those of you who have yet to read Hannah's War, uh, this book is incredible. So I'm just going to give you a little backstory about our conversation. Um, Here it is. Berlin, 1938. Austrian physicist Dr. Hannah Weiss is on the verge of the greatest discovery of the 20th century, splitting the atom. She understands that the energy released by this discovery can power entire cities or destroy them. Hannah believes the weapon's creation will secure an end to future wars, but because she is a Jewish woman living under the harsh rule of the Third Reich, her research is belittled, overlooked, and eventually stolen by her German colleagues. Faced with an impossible choice, Hannah must decide what she is willing to sacrifice in pursuit of science's greatest achievement. New Mexico, 1945. Returning wounded and battered from the liberation of Paris, Major Jack Delaney arrives in the New Mexican desert with a mission to catch a spy. Someone in the top secret nuclear lab at Los Alamos has been leaking encoded equations to Hitler's scientists. Chief among Jack's suspects is the brilliant and mysterious Hannah Weiss, an exiled physicist lending her talent to J. Robert Oppenheimer's mission. All signs point point to Hannah as the traitor, but over three days of interrogation that filter her lies from the truth, Jack will realize that they have more in common than either one bargained for. So there we are. I know, right? Bum, bum, bum. So I I know that you were very interested in female characters, particularly in high-stakes situations, political and social questioning about society with epic scope. So I'm, I'm curious, how did the idea for this particular story come to you? Well, um, I was doing research on uh, actually the screenplay you mentioned about the women air service pilots in World War II, Mm. um, Mm -hmm. which just is is an astounding story that I'm still shocked has not been made into a movie. Um, 
because these these women were as 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 brave as men and trained in the military and and died actually in the line of duty but weren't given military benefits um uh death benefits and were not buried in Arlington um and uh it's 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 shocking um that mm. they hadn't been recognized and and that has been a, a key for me for for the stories that that I tend to be attracted to so i was mm-hmm. sitting in the library, a New York Public Library, my absolute favorite. Um, and I mine too, by the way. <laughs> oh my God! How, I mean, just Such walking an... between those two lions, it's you're yeah. like I'm in heaven. Um, totally. So I, I was um, in their microfiche room, so that gives you a sense of how far back this was. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> oh, I'd love to see the headline on the day that we won the war, which mm. technically was the day that we bombed Hiroshima. Yeah. Um, so I, I called up the, the issue, the New York Times, for that date. And the, the headline was huge, you know, uh, X number of thousand killed, Truman vows reign of ruin. But then under the headline, the New York Times had to tell the entire history of the development of this atomic bomb to the world because it was developed entirely in secret. So much right. so that scientists working at Los Alamos, some of them did not know what they were working on. They, wow. they were working on sonar for submarines. I mean, it was a top, top, top secret project. Mm. And so there was this kind of historical overview. And below the fold, I saw a sentence that read, the key component that allowed the Allies to develop the bomb was brought to the Allies by a female Mm. non-Aryan physicist. And I sat up in my chair. I thought, (laughs) who is this woman? I knew non-Aryan meant Jewish. I did have a second of thinking, I wonder why the New York Times couldn't say Jewish (laughs) at that time, but but they didn't. And there was no name. She was this mysterious female non-Aryan scientist. And I immediately knew it was like she reached out and grabbed me from the newspaper mm. because <laughs> I had a sense that there was an incredible story there and that I was the one to, to, to track it down and tell it. And um, I, I don't think I had any idea in that moment how long it would take me or how much research it would involve um, or how much of my life I would, I would spend um, really shaping a story that was worthy of its um, subject matter. But mm-hmm. I, I was in. I was all in from that moment on. Mm. And there wasn't much available about her. I mean, did it take quite a bit of, of deep diving to find her name and get more information about this non-Aryan female it, physicist? It, it was kind of interesting because... It, it didn't. Once I knew she existed, 
Mm-hmm. It didn't take that much uh, diving to mm-hmm. find it because there, there is a biography of her. Um, oh. It's an academic press. It's, um, you know, it's it's not Oxford Press, but it it's a good, well written biography. Uh, and I found that right away, and I tracked down the author who is an emeritus professor, and she was very helpful. And, and then I mm. found uh, letters and diaries. And I, I should say, because she should no longer be a mystery, that the, the um, inspiration was this woman named Dr. Lisa Meitner, uh, who was living and researching in Berlin up until 1938, when um, the Nazis annexed Austria and her status as an Austrian obviously disappeared, and her status as a Jew became uh, a target on her back, and she had six mm. hours to flee. Um, wow. wow. And there's there's some interesting stories around that, which I'd be happy to share. But but once, so, so I found her. But then what was so fascinating was this kind of disconnect between what it was, it was absolutely clear that she had discovered nuclear fission, that she was the mm. one who identified that the, the atom had been split. This came after a long collaboration with Otto Hahn uh, in Germany, um, and she was a pioneering genius. I'll just use the word because there's no question and, and totally. people like yeah. Einstein, actually, you know, with a little bit of digging, I found a quote where Einstein called her the mother of the atomic bomb, um, hmm. whom she would have detested. Um, of course. Because she was very ambivalent about the bomb. Um, not about her discovery. I mean, she did believe that there were all sorts of peaceful uses of nuclear energy that were going to um, make the world a better place. Um, she was also aware of its potential for, you know, mass destruction, but that was not something that she wanted to pursue or be associated with, certainly not the mother of. But, um, but so there was this disconnect between the extraordinary achievements and the lack of um, the, her, her name just wasn't out there in the public record. Um, yeah. Otto Hahn, her partner, got a Nobel Prize for the, the mm. very discovery that she had uh, arguably pioneered, um, yeah. perhaps even was a little bit more of a, of a, a, a discoverer of than, than he was. Um, but some of the circumstances, including her being Jewish, but also, I believe, her being a woman, um, kept her. And Otto Hahn's, um, uh, I don't want to bash men, but he did have a very male <laughs> and very German sense of um, his own uh, incredible power and intellect, um, and somehow got the Nobel Prize Committee to agree with him that you know, he alone discovered this, um, and she had sort of had nothing to do with it. Um, so, so just that in and of itself um, fired me up even more to get her to get of her course. story out there. 
Yeah. I wonder if she ever tried to fight for her name to to be included or if she just really didn't have that opportunity because of what was happening with the war. Well, I found out more since I wrote the book. Um, Really? I did read her her diary and she was in the audience uh, when they gave the Nobel Prize to Han. And she says in her diary... I was so disappointed that he never even mentioned my name. Mentioned. Wow. Yeah. And Interesting yeah. that she was disappointed that she expected it, maybe. Yes. You know? Yes. Oh, I, 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 and I know, oh. I mean, I think any woman who has sat in a meeting and had mm-hmm. an idea that everyone sort of ignored, and then maybe 10 minutes later, a man has the very same idea and suddenly it's, it's brilliant. <laughs> it's and, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to go ahead <laughs> right. with that, you know, Chad or, oh, sorry, I shouldn't have said Chad. That's No, I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> but, but let's just say Otto. Um, you know, every woman has been in that situation at one time or another, no matter how brilliant um, they might be, there is mm-hmm. that sense of um, decorum and that you're not supposed to, you know, make a fuss um, or contradict in a public place. And I, I later did find a letter that Meitner wrote that she never sent. And I believe these were her real thoughts. Um, mm. Number one, excoriating Otto Hahn and herself for not leaving Germany sooner. Um, but particularly because Han stayed, um, she wrote about knowing the, uh, that what was going on with the Jews, knowing that Jews were being rounded up and, and saying and doing nothing. And the fact that, that Han not only stayed, but ended up working for the war machine in Germany. Sure. Um, yeah. And then she also talked about... Uh, his 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 lapse of memory in terms of the the, the credit for the discovery, um, mm. but she never sent it, and I think I think that there were many reasons for that, but I'm sure that one of them was that she had fought so hard to get where she was uh, as the only woman you know, uh, professor as the only woman giving lectures as the only woman with a lab at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin, which was really the preeminent um, scientific research institute in the world, her lab was in the basement. All the men's labs were on the first floor. She was in the janitor's closet, but but she had a lab and she had a collaborator. And I think Mm -hmm. that she felt grateful. And, Mm -hmm. And I know that when she was trying to sort of make a decision about whether to leave or not, it weighed very strongly in her mind that she had to walk away. She would have to walk away from all of the work that she had been Mm -hmm. doing and all of the collaboration and all of the equipment and all of that, you know, the, the, the opportunity 
um, that she right. had gotten right. in Germany that she didn't know how she could possibly duplicate anywhere else. You know, it really came through her passion for her work. <clears throat> as I was reading, I wondered if, as the author, did you ever feel as though you had become Hannah? I know some actors completely immerse themselves in the character and become that character. Did that happen to you with Hannah? Did you step in her shoes and think her thoughts and feel her emotions and her anger at the injustices that she faced? I I didn't have to step in her shoes because they were my shoes. Um, mm. As a woman director in Hollywood <clears throat> with a passion for truth-telling through stories, I recognized that truth-telling through science or, or truth discovering the truth through science is a passion as strong as the passion for creativity. I, I believe mm. it is virtually the same. Mathematics and science are more like art and music than, than anything else. They're not cerebral, dispassionate uh, yeah. uh, pursuits, and certainly not at the level of a, of a genius like Meitner. Um, the, the passion is tangible and real, and you literally barely sleep when you're on the verge of, of that, of that discovery. And so I, I felt that I felt that many, many times in my life and it was not conscious. Um, you know, I didn't sort of say to myself, I'm going to immerse myself in her life. But as soon as I kind of recognized what that, what, not only what the passion was in my life, but also, you know, the feeling of collaboration, which is something that as a director, you, you, you do in film, you do in theater, which is, you know, my, my original sort of background was in the theater. That collaboration is so intoxicating. Um, Hmm. and, um, it's, it's like nothing else. You just feel alive. Um, so, so that was very real and present for me. Um, and being the only woman in the room, also Mm. something I, uh, have experienced. Um, you know, you don't, you don't become the first woman to direct Miami Vice or Wise Guy without being the only woman in the room. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I really felt like she was she had come to life so clearly and that I felt the passion of your writing. And one of the things I loved about this book, too, was the juxtaposition of the younger, innocent, childlike Hannah, you know, with the older Hannah who had experienced so much loss and hardship, yeah. yet persevered to further her work because of her passion for that work. You could feel that life had weighed her down. It was subtle, but it was really well done. I wonder... Was there much re- rewriting till you felt good about the younger versus the older Hannah that you were depicting? Hmm. That's a good question. Or did it just happen naturally? <laughs> well, uh, you know, you, you sort of <laughs> nothing happens naturally, right? The most effortless things are always the one that take effort effort to look effortless 
Um, mm-hmm, but I don't, totally. <laughs> I don't, it wasn't rewriting. It was very much, um, helped by the research. Um, because, mm. you know, Los Alamos was a very particular place and it was a place of shadows and paranoia. And, you know, I, I knew that when the older Hannah was at Los Alamos, she had the memory of what had happened to her in Germany. And so her way of looking at, say, the tension between the pure scientists and the military who were working with this kind of uneasy truce side by side because they they had to. I mean, she remembered when the Nazis had literally walked into her beloved institute and announced Mm. this is no longer a research institute or a university setting. This is now part of the war machine. And so if you have experienced that and experienced the, the, the repercussions in your own life, you can't really look at what was going on in Los Alamos through innocent eyes. Right. You would see the military, you would have that fear that perhaps they were doing the exact same thing. Um, and, the mistrust, yes. yeah. And, and I, yeah. Think that, um, I think that was one of the things that uh, attracted me to the story because history mm-hmm. does repeat itself. And uh, I really like the idea of someone who has been through this watching it unfold again in a different way, in a different country, with different, you know, cast of characters, and yet understanding what the pattern is that, mm-hmm. that you know, that, that a sense, in a sense she was watching everybody walk down the same path that she had walked down herself. Um, so she was she was a good a, a good um, she had a point of view about her situation, and I think that was what brought the heaviness and the guardedness mm, to her. Yeah. The thing that I'm so happy that you felt um, was that sort of ever present sense of I've I've been here before. Mm. I know how this ends. Uh, does not end yeah. well. Um, <laughs> right. So, yeah. yeah. So it was really that, you know, when um, this is a bit of a digression, but I, I think a lot because I've been a director in film and television, I think a lot about aging actors up to, to look older, aging them down to look younger and, you know, you see, obviously, we had the Irishman, people trying it with visual effects, <laughs> people trying it with makeup. And, it's a varying um, success. <laughs> right, right. Yes, limited success. <clears throat> and I believe that a really good actor can actually show you the age without mm-hmm. all that much help. Um, and so I think that was maybe my approach 
to the character mm. also was that if I could immerse myself in the circumstances with the knowledge that she had, I didn't have to, you know, add a lot of sort of creaky shoulders or, you know, frowns <laughs> and wrinkles. <laughs> um, right, right. I felt like, well, I, tr- I would trust a great actor to do this, so I'd better be a good enough writer to do it myself. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I, I really felt the, the director in you, I think I did anyway, there were so many cinematic moments. Uh, it was like a sweeping film playing out in my mind's eye from the moment Jack Delaney steps out of an R4 military helicopter complete with the sounds and the desert heat and of Los Alamos. I mean, you can almost taste it, right? Um, as I was reading, I, I I kept thinking this has got to be turned into a movie. <laughs> Is that your hope for it? I mean, do you hope to be the director and will, would you write that screenplay? And like, like what? Are you, what's your vision for the future? Of so, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to be coy or 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 lie. Um, there, there has there we are. I am in conversation about a potential movie. Um, mm. And I'm very excited <laughs> about that. Um, <laughs> I, um, I, I would definitely write the screenplay. I would definitely be involved as a producer. I'm, I, I have a feeling that I have already directed it. If you know what I mean. I, do. I mean, I did. Yeah. As you say, I did direct it on the page, mm. and. I'm not sure that I need to do that again, which is a very surprising conclusion for me to come to, because, of Mm -hmm. course, you know, my dream for all those years I was directing other people's TV shows and other people's scripts was that I would direct a script of my own. And and I would very much like to do that. Um, I would love to direct the Women Air Service Pilots project, for example, or another project that I have finished that is is on a much smaller scale. Um, but I feel as if when I made the decision to write this book, my decision was about completing this story and bringing this story into the world. Hmm. Um, it was one of the reasons I did not choose to write this as a screenplay because I felt a screenplay is not, is not a document you can hand to somebody and say, this is, this is complete. This is it. Mm. Take this, mm. go away, read it. And, and I will have told you the story I wanted to tell you. Mm. A screenplay begs for a director and actors and all of, and a lot of money, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. <laughs> um, and so I almost have a sense that perhaps if I were directing, I would not be as open to discovery as another director Mm. might be because interesting. I've told it, I've told the story. Right. Yeah. That makes, that absolutely makes sense to me. Plus I would imagine there'd just be this kind of curiosity to see where it would go next, you know, beyond what you have created in the hands of someone else. Like where will it, where will it fly off to? I, I do have that curiosity. Um, mm. And I was, you know, at one point in my career, I was a, a television writer on staff. And because I had directed many, many, many episodes of this particular show, 
directors would come and they'd find an episode that I'd written and they would immediately come into my office and say, well, how do you see this? You know, you're such a wonderful director. I don't want to step on your vision. And and I would literally Mm -hmm. say, I want you to surprise me. That's what I want to do. If I tell you what I see, I mean, I hope I've told you what I see on the page. Now I want you to take that and make it yours. Make it better. Make it it better than anything I I expected. Um, And 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 it usually was. So, I mean, yes, there are certainly stories of writers who are just endlessly frustrated by the way that their scripts have been misinterpreted and, you know, miscast. And I would want to play a, 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 a guardian role um, as a producer in making sure that, say, the casting um, really worked for me. But But that's different than you know, than being on the set, choosing every angle. All right. So, so who do you have planned for Hannah? Oh my God. That's the question everyone asks. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Um, Okay. Well, so this is going to surprise you, I suspect. Um, It's Nicole Kidman. Because of what I just said about aging actors, that I, I believe the key to and here the the age difference is eight eight years from thirty eight mm-hmm. to forty five. Um, I believe that it is better to cast young and trust the actors to age up in the way I was talking about my in my writing in terms of that sort of weight that they bring. And so I would like to cast this quite young. I think much younger than people think. Because when when people Mm. read the book, you know, I get names like um, Rachel Weitz, who was in The Constant Gardener and is Jewish, of course, and is a fabulous actress. But she's too old. You know, scientists... Scientists are that there's there's really a mantra in the scientific community that if you have not made your great discovery by the time you're thirty, you're washed up. Hmm. So you know my my Hannah is twenty seven or twenty eight mm-hmm. when she's in Germany, and yeah. she's thirty five when she's in Los Alamos. So um, I've also heard Natalie Portman, who I think is, you know, is wonderful. And I I think that that's a little closer than Rachel Weitz because, you know, I think Natalie is 40, but she's very, she has a gamine quality to her. And she is Jewish, of course, and she's very identified as Jewish. But the person I... Is that important to you? What? Oh, oh, sorry, you were just going to answer the question. I was going to say, is it important to you that the char- that whoever plays this character, whoever plays Hannah, is actually Jewish? No. It's important okay. I was just to curious. me that she be extraordinarily intelligent, mm-hmm. uh, that you believe that above anything else. It's mm-hmm. important to me that she be um, ferociously um, strong. Um, but in a way that is guarded and quiet, that quiet confidence. Um, 
And it's very important to me yeah. that she care enough about the the Jewish part of Hannah um, that 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 she takes that seriously. Um, yeah. But you know, let's let's cut to the chase. So the person that I see is Shirsa Ronan, who is not Jewish, but I think is the best actress we have um, a lot, best young actress we have alive right now. Um, wow. And I saw her in Mary Queen of Scots, where she played Mary, and mm-hmm. uh, and she just burned up the screen with her intelligence and her uh, ferocity and her beauty, <laughs> and I was just captivated. Um, so she's been in my mind ever since. Cool. <laughs> That's a great question, Chad. <laughs> well, I want to change the subject and talk about the socio-political message that appears in this book. Really well done. Um, in fact, there's a passage I'd like to read real quick, if you don't mind. I'm, I'll read it. I mean, I'm going to have you read something, too. Um, let me go to... For anyone following along, I'm going to be on page 63. The National Socialist Party was always trying to gin up seemingly urgent fears of Jews, of immigrants, of communists, homosexuals, and deviant artists. But it was easy to dismiss them and their ridiculous little leader as an annoyance, the lunatic fringe who had to be indulged in a society where all should be free to speak and believe as they like. As I was reading, end quote, as I was reading this book, I kept seeing parallels to what's happening politically today. And actually, when you wrote this book, we weren't yet experiencing things like a president threatening to postpone elections, for God's (laughs) sake. But I wonder, was your intention to remind readers that we cannot take our liberties for granted, that we must remain awake and aware, lest we become complicit in racism in today's socio-political climate? Yes, absolutely. That was part of my intention. Um, as I was writing, because it was over time, um, you know, I, I I felt that those parallels were relevant in different ways. Um, I mean, there was one point I think where we were um, where Colin Powell was speaking to the United Nations about weapons of mass destruction and as a reason to go to war. And I was probably in the very early stages, late stages of research, early stages of outlining. And I thought, oh my God, this is so, this, the parallels are so amazing. You know, here we are <laughs> talking about nuclear weapons more so. again um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. nuclear weapons and a race for the atomic bomb. And, you know, in this case, it was a race to keep to supposedly keep Iraq from developing a nuclear weapon. Um, And, you know, and then along the way, there were other parallels. But, of course, where we are now, the parallels are so intense. Um, It's terrifying. And I had an interesting um, sort of assignment, I think, and I was really aware of this when I was... um, researching Hannah's life in Germany, I kept thinking, you know, everyone always says, oh, but, you know, why didn't the Jews all leave? 
you know, why did why did they stay? And I, I kept I kept thinking that's my job is to really try to mm. understand why she stayed and to make that clear to a reader so it didn't become about, you know, this sort of ignorant or blind or, you know, stupid woman uh, who right, just ignored yeah. everything that was going on around her. And so uh, I guess in that um well, look, she's, you know, she's also falling in love. She is also <laughs> in this incredible collaboration. She is also at the top of her game in her work. So, you know, those were three powerful reasons to stay. But it also seemed to me that when you are not uh, looking at something with with hindsight, you you react very differently um in the moment and i now think about the 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 muslim ban you know i mean what we were we mm-hmm. were lawyers and people were running out to the airports you know and then came the kids in cages and mm-hmm. everybody was running down to the border and thinking well this is insane surely you know this is the worst right. it's going to get, you know, and right. we'll, 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 Surely, this will this. change the tide. And, yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's like, out, so it was outrage upon outrage upon outrage. And on each level you, you adjust because mm-hmm. I mean, here we are Americans living in a society where we take for granted free speech, free right of assembly uh, you know, all of those things that the Constitution promises, freedom of the press, and every <laughs> single one of those things has been jeopardized. I mean, yeah. like intensely jeopardized. And yet yeah. I don't see people massively running to leave the country. Right. 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 Yeah. Well, you know, that brings me to another point. And I, I'd like to have you read a passage. Um, there's another point in the book where, where Hannah talks about, you know, the smartest people she knows keep saying this craziness will pass. Everything will get back to normal. This idea of that it's going to get back to normal. Um, so I'd like you to read pages 96 and 97, okay. if you don't mind. Thank you. Um. There were so many rules now. Almost 400 separate edicts had filtered down from the national and regional powers, all of which shored up the Vernendung von Ausstung der Juden aus dem deutschen Wirtschaftenleben, the degree on the elimination of the Jews from economic life. There was a law that forbade Jews to purchase bread from non-Jews, prior to 5.30 p.m., a law that forbade Jews to sell bread to non-Jews at any time, a law that forbade non-Jews to purchase bread on behalf of Jews, and a law that forbade the gifting of bread-baking ingredients from non-Jews to Jews, from Jews to non-Jews who might bake the bread for them, and from Jews to other Jews. There was a limit to the number of cigarettes that could be sold to Jews, and an ancillary limit on lighters. 
limits on the days and hours during which Jews could purchase aspirin, shoes, postage stamps, butter, and wine, laws prohibiting Jews from buying luxury items, laws designed to prevent Jews from following kashrut dietary laws, and of course, a law requiring every Jew to display the gold star so that no merchant could claim that he didn't realize he was measuring out two ounces of licorice bits for a Jewish child prior to 6 p.m. on a Thursday. Deciding against even a perfunctory attempt at shopping, Hannah wearily made her way back to the pleasant neighborhood where she lived. It was an elegant upper-middle-class enclave where rows of well-kept houses sat comfortably close together on a quiet street. The bay windows, beveled glass, and elaborate moldings spoke of a time when Berlin was a younger, more civil place, its citizens concerned with art and architecture. The tall oak trees were past the peak of their fall colors. Dry leaves scattered down the sidewalk and drifted golden in the gutters. By the time Hannah reached her front stoop, she felt nearly normal again, almost Mm -hmm. as if she were living in a sane and stable world where she could still sit at her favorite lunch counter and indulge in a small bowl of ice cream. Oh, wow. That scene gives me goosebumps. It makes, it actually brings tears to my eyes. And this idea that this world is crumbling down around her, you know, and yet there's these, we, we reach for these moments of normalcy to keep us sane, right? And I wonder, do you think, you know, we kid ourselves into thinking this will never happen to me? I mean, was that part of your intention for that scene? I'm taking a very long pause because I'm thinking. You know, I I had no idea. <laughs> Clearly, I, I, I am not a psychic. I had no idea about COVID-19 and how mm-hmm. isolating. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when I when I read that again, I I keep thinking about you know the way the way here in New York I was I was holed up in my apartment and and my my bliss my moment of relief was walking my puppy uh, to Central Park and wearing a mask of course but getting to Central Park and it was quiet and beautiful and the leaves were you know dappling the the sun across the grass and I'd throw the ball and my puppy would go get it and and it would be normal and Mm -hmm. delightful. And I would forget, you know, I'd let the mask hang off my ear because there was nobody around. And then I'd have to guard myself all up again to go back into reality so I, I don't think I wrote that to sort of say, hey, this is where we're going. Mm-hmm. But I've, I, I read about the Nuremberg Laws, and I really understood how rights don't get taken away in a moment. 
they get take yes. they get chipped away so slowly that you know you you can't go to a store between 10 and 12 and then the next day it's like or the next week well you can't go to that store but you can go to the one down the street and then you know you can only go to the one down the street for an hour and then you can't go in at all and and so you know like like the famous boiling frog in the pot you know if you turn the water up very slowly the frog adjusts and doesn't know that he's being boiled to death <laughs> if you drop right. a frog in boiling water they know um but you know but the nuremberg laws were just brilliantly crafted to and i tried to get that sense in my little you know little that paragraph of how mundane they seemed like how easy it was to sort of adjust to it and then you know and then you'd get home and you'd grab on to whatever was still felt normal mhm yeah well i mean that's that's how we persevere that's how we stay alive yes. yeah, that's our humans in general right no very well, few people are are trained to look for the worst and expect the worst mm-hmm. you have to have hope to be a a a, a human on this earth um and I, <laughs> I think it is it is human nature to reach for hope wherever you can well and it's so important i mean absolutely we we do need hope yeah. um i want to I want to totally change the subject, and I want to talk about Faust, if we can. Okay, sure. <laughs> Faust plays a large part in this book, and almost a character, you know, um, in the in the book. Can you talk about your decision to use this legendary character and, and what it means to the story of Hannah? Well, um, at first, uh, it was kind of a placeholder decision, in a way because I was thinking about the postcards and how uh, one might devise if, if one were a very brilliant scientist and a well-educated person, one might devise a, a coded um, way of, of speaking and how, you know, usually codes rely on some kind of um, template Rosetta Stone for the making of the code and the breaking of it. And so I got the idea, you know, that one of the great books of German literature, it's certainly in every single, you know, Faust is, you know, it's, it's, it's almost a cliche how, how completely (laughs) German it is as a story. And it's, you know, probably the German classic um, and so I started reading it. I started looking for quotations that I could use as, uh, as part of the back and forth on the postcards. And I just was shocked by how, uh, by, by how prescient it was in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, the, the essential story is man 
selling his soul for all the knowledge in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's not all the money in the world. It's not all the power in the world. It's all the knowledge. And for a scientist or an artist, that's that's a bargain I would sometimes consider making. Um, <laughs> um, I haven't yet, as far as I know. No one's come to take my soul. But, um, but it just seemed like the perfect metaphor uh, for what those scientists mm. did uh, when they created the atomic bomb. And yeah. since uh, Hannah herself understands the implications of the discovery of splitting the atom very clearly, even at the beginning, you know, she, she knows that once the atom has been split, there's this release of an extraordinary amount of energy that can be harnessed for good or for evil, um, which is true of knowledge. It can be used for good or evil. It's not in and of itself a good thing or a bad thing. It's neutral. It's how you use it. Mm -hmm. And so it seemed in every way like the appropriate, um, the appropriate thematic piece to weave into the story. I loved it. Absolutely. It's brilliant. I was like, this is so great. <laughs> and I, I've never read Faust, but I'm going to. Oh, well, so, it's, it's thank you long, <laughs> but, but it's worth you know, um, <laughs> Have you the, read it, Chad? Uh, I've, I haven't read it, but I've seen a couple uh, adaptations for the screen. Well, I wondered... And I'm if, sure you have too, right? M- yes. And I that I kind of wondered that, you know, considering you come from theater, if, you know, that wasn't part of your in- inclination to go toward Faust too. Well, it was actually. Um, you know, when I when I, st- I I went to Yale Drama School and Yale Drama as a director and Yale Drama School takes its drama very very seriously. Um, as one would expect I I remember getting a reading list the summer before I started the program with oh you know Faust, the Prince of Hamburg uh, Vatican, Brecht of course almost every Shakespeare play um, French literature I mean it was you know it was intense Um, and Mm. And I, being a very dutiful student and very excited to begin, actually read every single thing on that reading list, including um, Goethe. And so, you know, I was, I, I, I will say that even as a, um, a graduate student, I was always fascinated by German literature. Uh, I directed mm-hmm. Vatican Springs Awakening um, in New York long before the musical. Uh, it was the, the, my premiere production. I directed a premiere of a Brecht play. So I was always kind of steeped in this, in German, uh, uh, I'm going to say literature, but I really mean uh, dramatist, dra- drama. Um, yeah. And I guess it was probably sitting there in some part of my brain, so it was easier to access. Um, Mm-hmm, 
It all comes together, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I I've read mostly everything by Dostoevsky. He's one of my favorite authors. Mm -hmm. And I, as I was reading this book, I kept thinking that it felt like a combination of you know some beautiful sweeping film or even like Casablanca meets Dostoevsky. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, I, okay, I'm blushing like right to my I have root tips. Uh, <laughs> that sounds pretty good. Just, like the character development and like this, this you know, it was, everything is so important and it hinges, you know, humanity hinges on this thing, right? And you just did that so beautifully. But I'd like to talk about the science, I mean, of nuclear fission. You know, it felt really smart, and yet you didn't go too deep into the into the weeds. You know, um, it kept me wrapped, which I really appreciated. By the way, thank you. I know nothing about but, nuclear fission. Thank you for mentioning it because I do know that people sometimes think, "Oh, a book about oh God, it's going to be too much." Vision. I yeah. don't. Oh, it sounds very dull and uh, scary and intimidating. <laughs> and I right. don't really know anything about science, and I'm not sure I want to. Um, right, right. But 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 interestingly enough. That was kind of my position. I was mm. a terrible science student in school. Really? Really? Oh, my gosh. Terrible. I just assumed that you had a love of, like, some weird love of physics. No, absolutely <laughs> not. Um, mm. I mean, I was a, a washout in all of my science classes. Uh, my father was a mathematician, and... <laughs> My poor father, I'm, I'm making him sound terrible, and he was really a wonderful, wonderful guy. But he used to, <laughs> you know, want to help with homework and such. And, you know, inevitably, after about an hour and a half, he would just explode with a sentence like, I don't understand how you don't understand this. You know, basically saying, <laughs> you are so stupid. Uh, which he didn't say, but you know, it was it was agony for me. I just, I mean, mm -hmm. I understood words, I understood images, right. I didn't understand numbers. So there was a point when I was researching Lisa Meitner when I realized I was going to have to learn enough about nuclear physics to be able to tell the story, right. and I did have a moment of thinking. I don't know if I'm up to it. Mm, wow. Oh, what well, I did, did well. <laughs> I, there were two things that made me feel like I could do it. One was movies like A Beautiful Mind. Um, mm. If you remember the story of John Nash, played by Russell Crowe. And there was a scene in which game theory, his great discovery, was illustrated in a sort of game in a bar where these five guys try to pick up women. And what they discover through their attempt is that it's best not to send the most attractive guy out because then there won't be women for the other guys, but to send the least <laughs> attractive guy out. And then sort of 
the other women follow because they want to get next to the most attractive guy, and then everybody gets paired up. And, and you know, whether that is actually a real accurate description of game theory, I have no idea. But I love in movies when there's a, a, a parallel and you feel as if you've learned something because it's presented right. in a way that you understand. And I thought, if I can do that, and I do have the luxury of having this character, Jack, who comes into this world knowing absolutely nothing about mm-hmm. nuclear physics <laughs> and has to figure it out, you know, in order to talk with Oppenheimer and in order to talk with Hannah, then he gets to ask all the stupid questions that, or, or not stupid, all the basic questions. The questions we would ask. That a reader would ask and that I was asking. Um, And I also found out, you know, that there were certain habits that scientists and mathematicians had pretty much consistently with everyone I talked to. One, One is that virtually every scientist or math student of, of significance plays at least one instrument, if not many. And that's consistent across the field. So I thought, well, I can use music in this book. And I, I can use that as not just a, a correct detail, but actually as something that can immer- immerse you in the world. I also had many conversations with scientists where they would say things like, you know when you walk into a lunchroom where the scientists have been sitting because you will see on the table bits of napkin and bits of paper with equations scrawled all over them <laughs> that have sort of been torn off right. and, you know, and left. They're all crumpled up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'll see that it's just like, you'll see, They'll doodle, they'll doodle in the in the margins of books. They'll, I mean, anywhere. The, it, I even discovered, in fact, that um, there was a game at Los Alamos where the scientists would go into the men's room, and one of them would begin an equation, um, carving carving it into the wooden stall of the the bathroom, and then mm-hmm. another scientist would come in and do the next part. And then another scientist would do the next part. And so little details like that really brought the world alive to life. To me. Yeah. Cool. See, now, when you say scientist, you're obviously not talking about botanists. Because <laughs> I know a lot of botanists and they I, don't I, do I hope that. they don't listen to this podcast, but they're not particularly musical. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, Keith, if you're listening. <laughs> but, but. But they, but I think there is like, you know, music is the most beautiful of maths, you know? That's what they Oh, say. yeah. I mean, we could wander off into the whole 12-tone scale and just the whole tuning to A440 and all that. Yeah, it's it's math. It's science. It's, totally. it is, but mm-hmm. I mean, there, of course, of course, mathematicians would appreciate it, right? Right. Well, there is a reason that Philip Glass wrote that incredible opera. Einstein on the beach. Um, right. And I've seen that. I've seen that twice. I actually saw the original production in New York at the Met where it was about nine hours and you could literally 
walk. He said this was his instruction in the in the playbill. Leave whenever you want and come back in because you really won't not that you won't miss anything, but you'll you'll fall right back into the music because mm. it is like an equation that you walk away from to think and then you come back in with perhaps a completely new perspective. Um, mm. And that quote, which is in the book, uh, where mm-hmm. Hannah says, um, Niels Bohr would always ask when he was stuck, what would Mozart do? Mm-hmm. That is an accurate and correct quote. Wow, so. that's cool. Well, speaking of coming back with a new perspective, I really appreciated the reading group questions in the back. And I'd like to tell our listeners that Jenna Eliasberg is going to appear at our first book club for the San Diego Writers Festival. This is going to be a lot of fun. And it's so nice of you, Jan, to join us. And I think you, you on your website, it says that you're happy to virtually attend lots of book clubs. I am. I feel very Which cheated. Which is awesome. Because this is my debut novel. And the thing mm-hmm. I was looking forward to was my book tour, you know, was actually... And you didn't get one. Uh, oh, I'm so sorry. March 3rd, the novel came out. March 10th, yeah. I was in Miami, ready to go to my, you know, book tour destination. And COVID descended. There were two mm-hmm. people in the audience. I went back to New York, and it was over, completely yeah. over. So it's a great pleasure for me to hear both good and bad, you know, from people who've read the book. Um, but to talk about it, uh, answer questions, I mean, I, I really do love that process, and I feel cheated not to have gotten it in person so I'm available. Yeah, uh, I have a book club tonight. In fact, uh, there's a group in Denver. Oh, you woman, do. Woman contacted cool. me and said, "Would you come in via Zoom to our book club?" And I and I said, "Absolutely." So uh, that offer yeah. stands. Um, cool. Well, hopefully our listeners will come and join us on August 31st. It's at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. People can RSVP to the event at our website. This is, and as our listeners know, the premise is the official podcast of the San Diego Writers Festival. And you can go to sandiegowritersfestival.com forward slash book club to RSVP to that event. Jan Eliasberg, what's next? What book can I look forward to reading from you next? Um, there are two books that are battling Ooh. in my mind for attention. Um, and, Wonderful. Um, they're both, I think they're both in the, they're both books that if you like Tana's War, you will love. Um, but they're both, you know, quite, quite different, different time periods, different characters. Um, and I think that's probably all I'm going to say because I haven't settled on which one it's going to be. So I think I'd be jinxing it if I say too much, but there is definitely another book coming. Uh, as you know, there might be, there might be a film. So there might be a (laughs) screenplay waiting for me to be written. Um, 
And then, um, you know, I also, I'm also still a director. Uh, and <laughs> oh yeah, there's yeah, that. There's that. <laughs> and, uh, I have a lovely little film that, uh, you know, doesn't cost very much and, um, that, you know, that I might, that I might direct. So there, I've got a lot on my plate and I'm really happy. Um, Yay. Yeah. That's awesome. But writing this book opened so many doors for me. And um, the process of writing this book was so much fun. Mm. I just, well, oh, I just had a, a blast. <laughs> well, thank you for writing it. And I loved reading it. In fact, I plan to read it again. Oh. I had so much fun reading this book you know it's a pretty quick read despite the fact that it's literary fiction and i would definitely categorize it as literary fiction but completely approachable i read it in a day and a half um i just couldn't put it down i just couldn't wait to get to the next chapter i love how you transition from the past to the to the present and one of my favorite things that you do in this book is you know jack asks a question and she doesn't answer the question. Instead, we go back in time and we get to see it play out across the page. And then in the next chapter, Jack says, okay, but what about this? And he asks a question, right, yes. about that time. And then you find out that maybe she like kept some of those details well, maybe, that the reader is pretty Yeah, maybe that story was yeah. a little, yeah, maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe yeah. it was skipping over a couple of really important things. I mean, that mm -hmm. was that was uh, part of the fun of structuring yeah. the book, um, yeah. and I'm so I have to say I'm so grateful that you called it literary fiction because I'm very proud of the actual writing. Uh, mm. You know, the books I admire um, are books like The English Patient or uh, Michael Cunningham's The Hours. Uh, which I consider to be real literary fiction. Um, but, you know, this book has an espionage thriller structure. Totally. And so, right. yeah. you know, I think that's where you're responding to that page-turning quality of what happens next, what happens next, because, because every, you know, every time you think you've uncovered the truth, it reveals another lie. And so everything mm -hmm. is kind of kept guessing until the very end of the book. Um, but, you know, that can be done really gracefully and really carefully and really well. Or it can be done in a sort of pot boiler way where it's all kind of ginned up. And I yeah. would like to think that I've done it, you know, in, in, a, in a way that I don't know what's the best. Well, I, I read a lot of books. And mostly, for the most part, I know what's going to happen. I'm like, oh, they're going to get together. Oh, these two are lovers. Oh, well, he this is happening here. You know, it's so obvious that it, it's almost trope. And I never felt that. I always, you know, and Jack, I love Jack. But at one point, I literally put the book down and I said to myself, do I trust him? I don't know if I trust him. I want to trust him. I like him. I want to like him. But I don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. You know, like this tension. And, you know, I think you very skillfully created that that tension, that page turning spy thriller feeling. But yet it was always very flowing and it was graceful. And I didn't ever feel like the tension was there, but I never felt like it was an insult to my intelligence. Oh, thank you. 
Thank you. Thank <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I, the the <laughs> last thing I want to be accused of is speaking down to the audience. I can't stand that. Mm. And so many books do that. And I get it. I get that's what that's the purpose. You want to read it quickly. And you know, this book's just, um, I don't love them as much. I won't, I'm not going to read them again and again and, and buy one for everyone I know. <laughs> <laughs> and this book, like, it's just a beautiful book. Um, Hannah's War, it's available in all bookstores. We recommend that you buy it from warwicks.com listeners. They are one of our sponsors here on the premise. And, you know, Hannah's More is just a, a beautiful book. You will love this book. So, Jan Eliasberg, thank you so much for spending the time with us. This has been a wonderful conversation, a real honor for me. Well, thank you. You asked wonderful questions, really interesting questions, and it was a pleasure to, to talk with you. I really enjoyed oh. it. Well, thank you. Listener, you can learn more about Jan Eliasberg and her work at janeliasberg.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Jan Eliasberg and at Hannah's War Novel. Also follow her on Instagram. And of course, if you want her to come to your book club, just reach out on her website. This has been another episode of The Premise. Visit us online at thepremisepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at podpremise and subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>